Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex issues facing our society and bring our fightings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we are human, and our blind spots and biases will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Due to the nature of our podcast, some of the things that we talk about can get pretty heavy and they might even be divisive. We try to lighten the mood and avoid too much doom and gloom, but we still suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. steps into our discussion on presidential pardons and we started last week with a bit of trivia because I love trivia but now I think that it's time to just jump right into the one thing that our audience probably loves more than trivia and that's statistics no yeah just us maybe just us probably just us Well, let's start this podcast by taking a look at some of the most interesting stats surrounding presidential pardons and clemency in general. So, which president has used his clemency powers the most? You said that you were surprised by this. I actually was very surprised about this a lot. I would not have called this at all. (laughs) Did you have somebody that you thought it was? I actually thought, and this is probably because uh, back when I was less politically aware (laughs) and more influenced by maybe my parents, maybe the fact that I grew up on Southwest Missouri, that I kind of thought it was Obama. I'm not going to lie. Mm -hmm. No, I definitely thought it was. Um, But if we're, I I thought he was just giving them out like Easter, like Easter Halloween candy, just all the time. Right. And we'll talk about why that perception may be actually in in just a little bit. But if we're going to go on the sheer number of clemency actions, that would be Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who issued a total of 3,796 actions. Um, But if we're going to go by percentage, that would be Truman, who granted 41% of the requests received during his presidency. Again, never would have guessed either of them. No. So I'm going to follow that up with a question that sounds similar. Who has issued the most pardons? Now, this is not the same as use the clemency powers the most. This is specifically pardons. Right. So if you remember from our our last episode, we talked about the fact that there are five different ways that the president can use his or her clemency powers. Um, And one of them is the the full business pardon. Um, And so... big one. Yeah, the big one. Again, I definitely would have thought that this was President Obama. The same. But as one might expect, it is actually FDR again, who issued 2,819 pardons during his 12 years in office. Yes, that is right. Uh, three full terms. And uh, Harry Truman, who comes in as runner-up with 1,819 pardons. I mean, I guess it makes sense when you consider that FDR has, on average, about 
you know, four years more than your average president. Yeah. To get in those yeah. those pardons. I think that's I think that's safe to say. Right? Yeah. Okay, so have any pardons actually ever been revoked? Such an interesting finding. I did not expect this. I did not expect this. I thought it was like I'm gonna bury the lead here, or rather, no, I'm gonna give it away, give the answer away here. But yeah, uh, I thought that once the pardon was done, it was done. I thought that was it. Yeah, so did I. It, and for the most part, it is. Um, but the one time that a pardon has been revoked, President George W. Bush granted a par- pardon to a man named Isaac Tusi, who was a New York real estate developer, convicted of making false statements and you know doing mail fraud as part of a scheme to sell people poorly constructed housing and make a butt ton of money. Um, It was one of those fast turnaround pardons that came straight through the White House Council and completely avoided that Office of the Pardon Attorney process that we talked about in the last episode. Um, President Bush issued that pardon on the 23rd of December, 2008, but revoked it the next day after reports surfaced. (laughs) Right? Merry flippin' Christmas. Psych! (laughs) <laughs> After reports surfaced that Tusi's father had actually given more than $28,000 to the Republican Party um, and more than $2,000 to the campaign of Senator John McCain. Of course, he didn't just come out and say, whoops, sorry, no pardon for you. Um, instead, he issued a statement through his press secretary saying that the pardon attorney should actually have an opportunity to evaluate the case in light of the new information and make a determination. Mm-hmm. Uh, But the only reason that this was actually possible is because the pardon wasn't actually sent to the appropriate authorities and accepted before it was announced. Most scholars tend to think that once that process has happened, there's no turning back. But because it was so quick and nothing official actually got to the people who would need to accept and sign them, um, he was able to take that back. Don't count your pardons before they're transmitted to the proper authorities. It doesn't flow as well, but I like it. <laughs> hey, it works. Yeah. Following up on our earlier ones, who has granted the fewest clemency requests? So the overall actions. Were you surprised? Um, yes, kind of. I know. That was my answer, too. Yes, kind of. Not really. Right. But kind of. Partially surprised, but not totally surprised. Yeah, I know. Kind of. Makes sense. Um, so I'm going to put an asterisk before this one. Yeah. <laughs> Not really sure if this if this particular answer is going to stand. But as of January 7th, 2021, currently, according to the statistics on the U.S. Department of Justice website, that is Donald Trump. Right. At the time we recorded this pod, uh, the site noted that he had granted... 44 petitions for clemency. Um, However, that statistic does not take into consideration the requests granted on December 22nd and 23rd, 2020, which, if we math correctly here, brings his total to 92. Still a pretty low number. If, indeed, that number is 92, that means that in actuality, it's the first President Bush who granted the fewest requests at 77, only a mere 77 requests. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, when it looked like it was going to be Donald Trump, I wasn't super surprised. 
He doesn't really strike me as the kind of guy who, you know, is big on clemency. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I Don't was kind of surprised that. That, that President Bush would be the person who granted the fewest requests. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, that kind of makes me wonder, like, does it have to do with the amount of requests received? So who do you think has received the most requests for clemency? This one did not surprise me at all. No. Did not surprise me at all. Not even a little bit. No. That's President Obama, who actually actively encouraged federal inmates to apply for clemency as part of a program of criminal justice reform, um, which is probably why we thought that he was the person who had granted the most. um, Yeah. Because he certainly received the most requests. He received 36,544 requests and granted uh, 1,927 of them, or about 5%. Wow. That's so many. So many. I feel for the uh, the Office of the Pardon Attorney. Going, <laughs> right? That's a lot. That's a lot of work in four years. Um, flip that coin. Who's received the fewest? Also, also surprised me. I mean, I would hope that it it would be President Bush since he granted the fewest. Like, part of me wants to believe that, like, I don't know, he kind of always put off this nice guy image. So part of me wants to believe that if he had gotten he was, a lot more requests, yeah. he would have granted them. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right, though. It is. I mean, he only received 1,466 uh, clemency requests. So even though he only granted 77 of those his percentage, the amount that he actually granted is the same as Obama's. So 5%. Okay. Okay. That makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. However, I'm just going to pop that bubble right now. It would appear that presidents are becoming less forgiving. So based on the percentages of requests that are granted, it looks like they're granting fewer. So from McKinley, when the statistics first became available through Carter, each president granted at least 20% of the requests they received. You had a one in five chance of receiving your pardon. Reagan dropped that number to 12%. And since then, it has stayed in the single digits. Man. That's, I mean... Brutal. <laughs> if you're if you're looking for for some form of relief, like woof. Yeah, we do actually need to point out here that Justice Department statistics don't count clemencies granted through proclamation or executive order, like the actions taken by President Ford and Carter to forgive the thousands of people who avoided the draft during the Vietnam era, um, or you know these mass. Uh, amnesty acts that have taken place they also count some clemency recipients twice uh, for example in cases where someone were received both a commutation and a pardon roger stone roger stone roger stone so let's let's talk about some of the big deal pardons there's actually obviously there's there's a lot to talk about we've pulled some of the the cream of the crop of big deal um that we found interesting or compelling and uh, we're just going to hit on those really quick. Maybe the, the biggest deal pardon ever <laughs> came on Christmas Day in 1868, <laughs> <laughs> which if you heard that date, you might know what's coming. Uh, on that day, President Andrew Johnson granted full pardons and amnesty to soldiers who had fought for the Confederacy against the Union in the Civil War. It was a, a bid to reestablish unity across the country and foster reconciliation. And actually, 
uh, Robin and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago, uh, sort of musing, wondering if the, the relatively rapid reassimilation of the Confederacy in the U.S. had an unattended effect of sort of sending the message that traitors to the United States would be accepted back with open arms. And, and if that, if that's driving some of the rhetoric and action we're seeing today, uh, it's a big question. And unfortunately we just don't have the time to, right. to, to wrestle with it right now. Um, but I, I think I kind of believe that a lot of the, the subliminal mentality of the people we saw storming the Capitol. Yep kind of begins with this pardoning of the confederacy this idea that you can literally split off from the united states go to war with the united states kill u.s citizens and then be back at the dinner table the next day yeah making policy decisions that affect the united states with, not yeah, not just back at the dinner table, but in the halls of power. With with blanket pardons. And I, you know, we talked about it a little bit last week. And do we think that we'll see something like that happen um, with the folks that precipitated and participated in what happened at the Capitol? And uh, I, you know, I looking at, at circumstances like this, it's not unreasonable. No, it's not far-fetched at all. I don't think they deserve it. Yeah, I don't think I'm these guys president. deserved it either. It's <laughs> a fair point. It's a fair point. All right, all right, moving on. In 1947, Harry Truman issued pardons to 1,523 people convicted of violating the Selective Training and Service Act of 1940. Truman established a board to evaluate the roughly 15,000 men who had declined to participate in the World War II effort in any way, and the board determined roughly 10% were eligible because they belonged to traditionally pacifist religious groups such as the Quakers and the Mennonites. Um, in 1948, former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt wrote to Harry Truman to request a further review of the men who had been denied pardons. And Truman's response was, well, we're just going to read it because Mr. Truman and Mrs. Roosevelt were frequent pen pals. It says... I have read your letter with a great deal of interest. I have thoroughly looked into the conscientious objector's case, and I think all the honest conscientious objectors have been released. I'll admit that it is rather difficult to, for me to look on a conscientious objector with patience. These people were virtually shooting the Roosevelt's sons and Truman's nephews and everyone who served in the war in the back. My experience in the First World War with conscientious objectors was not a happy one. The majority of those with whom I came into contact were just plain cowards and shirkers, and that is the reason I asked Justice Roberts to make a complete survey of the situation and to release all those that he felt were honestly conscientious objectors, and that has been done. My sympathies with the rest of them are not very strong, as you can see. I love just how understated that is. Right. Because he all but wrote, like, F these guys. Right. I don't care. And uh, I mean, that's very, uh, that's very Truman-esque. That, that fits the theme, I think. It does. It fits the theme. And and then another one, it may be a cop-out, but one of the biggest deal pardons in history has to be the pardon of disgraced former President Richard Nixon by his successor, Gerald Ford. 
we definitely are not going to take the time to get into the ins and outs of this particular one, but the short of it was that Nixon and his aides had been caught engaged in illegal activities during his reelection campaign, like breaking into the DNC's headquarters at the Watergate complex, for example. Um, and he was facing impeachment and mounting public pressure. And so he resigned on August 9th, 1974 at noon. Exactly one month after he announced his resignation, Ford issued the, pres the former president a full, free, and absolute pardon for any crimes he committed while in office. Uh, that pardon was widely condemned at the time, but later it was praised for bringing closure to the divisive Watergate affair. Um, Ford was kind of heralded as the president who fell on his sword in order to bring the country back together. Yeah. Yeah, he actually received a, a, an award for it from the Kennedy Foundation uh, for that pardon. Which, again, I don't know what sort of message that is sending, right? but I am going to assume that minds that were more familiar with the situation than our own gave him that award for a reason. Right. Right. So. And shoot, nowadays that would just be another Tuesday. <laughs> Anyway, sorry. <laughs> anyone, anyone knows about everyone, everyone, sorry, knows about that pardon. And actually, a side note about this, because I found this out sort of not when I was researching this, but sort of tangentially. And if you haven't listened to the podcast Bagman or, or read the book by Rachel Maddow, you need to check it out because it is wild. It's about Spiro Agnew, Nixon's vice president, you know. The one before Ford. <laughs> yeah. He left office due to a completely different scandal than Watergate. And I did not know that. Holy crap. It is a doozy. Put it this way. At one point, Agnew goes to Congress and asks them to impeach him. And they say no. <laughs> Great. It's well worth the listen. I just wanted to throw that in there. Back on track. What about uh, some other pardons, some more modern ones? Let's fast forward a bit and hit on some of these bigger ones. Let's talk about President Obama. Yeah, let's There's do a it. Couple in, couple that I want to talk about with him. He issued 1,715 total acts of clemency. We talked about that earlier during his eight years, eight years in office. The majority of President Obama's clemency grants were for nonviolent drug offenders as part of the clemency initiative established by the Department of Justice in 2014. So Obama has publicly commented that the power to grant pardons and commutations embodies the basic belief in our democracy that people deserve a second chance after having made a mistake in their lives that led to a conviction under our laws. Obama's pardons and commutations were part of an overall reform initiative designed to promote equity in the criminal justice system. We've talked about why that was necessary in several of our episodes, or why it continues to be necessary. Not was, but is. Many of the sentences reduced by President Obama during his presidency were for crimes related to crack cocaine. And given the nature of the war on drugs and the disproportionate impact it had on minority communities, this may have been a necessary first step on the road to bringing equity to the American criminal justice system. Yeah, absolutely. But we also have to consider that President Obama also commuted 
the sentence of 74-year-old Oscar Lopez Rivera. Depending on how politically involved you were in 2017, you may have heard of Lopez or you may not. The short of it is that he was a Puerto Rican nationalist who had served 35 years of a 55-year sentence after being convicted of seditious conspiracy, attempted robbery, explosives, and vehicle theft charges. Uh, Lopez was a terrorist before the word became, unfortunately, synonymous with Muslim in the American lexicon. Um, He was suspected of being a leader of the Fuerzas Armada de Liberación Nacional, a.k.a. the Armed Forces of National Liberation, a Puerto Rican nationalist group dedicated to gaining Puerto Rican independence. In order to achieve that goal, they bombed multiple targets in the U.S. throughout the 1970s and the 1980s, the most famous of which was the bombing of the Francis Tavern, a historic bar and restaurant near Wall Street in Lower Manhattan. That bombing killed four people and injured 50 more, and nobody has ever been tried for the crime. There's far more to the story, but suffice it to say, they were a legitimate, active, and dangerous terrorist organization. Obama commuted Lopez's sentence January 17, 2017. That was three days prior to leaving office. As one would imagine, the decision was met with uh, some discord. <laughs> His supporters and proponents referred to Lopez as a political prisoner or independence activist and characterized him as a man unfairly and harshly targeted by the U.S. Some even called him Puerto Rico's Nelson Mandela. His opponents, including I am sure many of the people I work with, will only <laughs> recognize him as a terrorist. And I'm, I'm personally not a fan of the commutation. I mean, I'm not super upset. After all, it's not like he was pardoned. His guilt still stands. He still spent 35 years in jail and not insignificant amount of time. He's 77 years old now. People have spent less time in prison for murder. At the same time, I don't know. It's complicated, and I can't tell if I'm just too deep into my job and my career to look at this and be like, okay, I get it. If if I've been indoctrinated by that, or if this is just so... It's just bad. It looks, it's got a bad stink to it. I don't know. I don't typically view Obama as somebody who pulls the trigger on something explosive like this all willy-nilly. Right. I I, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with, at least my discomfort with it, has to do with the fact that in order to achieve this, they bombed locations in the United States. I mean... I guess kind of one of the fundamentals of of like the American social compact is you don't murder other Americans. Yeah, it seems pretty basic. I mean, it's right there, you know, inalienable right to life. Right. And I can understand fighting for Puerto Rican independence 100%. But it it gets to the point where I have a hard time understanding bombing and killing people in the name yeah. of that independence and I think that's where that's where it breaks down for me right if he had yeah. if he had had broken you know some of the more I guess you would call them philosophical laws yeah you know yeah that's one thing 
um, but to take the life of presumably innocent people um, in an effort to promote a particular cause. I don't know. I'm just not a fan. But yeah. Then yeah. again, 77 years old. I'm also not a fan of like hunting down 95 year old former SS soldiers and making them stand trial. I'm not a fan. Yeah. It, so. Yeah. I know. I. And maybe it's just because it's not our our lived experience right. for that. Yeah. I, we're not saying we're right in feeling that way. It's just this one is a very complicated one. It is. Um, There's a lot of depth in there. And I read a lot about it while we were researching it. I just couldn't I couldn't settle on where I felt what I felt about it. It was yeah. just hard. I don't know. Um, look into it. Let us know what you guys think because it's it, it's a yeah, it's a big one. And it, ha- yeah. it resonates a lot with um, our post 9-11 world. A lot of similar themes. This stuff's not simple, mostly. Um, and I mean, I guess it's time that we would move ahead to to the modern presidency and this ongoing pardon palooza. There have been a slew of big deal pardons throughout this whole presidency and especially in these waning days. It seems like Donald Trump is going for a world record of just incredibly self-serving and possibly objectively horrible pardons. Paul Manafort and Roger Stone might actually be among the least abhorrent of this current group. For example, Nicholas Slatton, Paul Slow. Is it Slow or Slough or Slew? You know what? Let's just go with, let's go with what your spirit guides you to do i don't give a fuck about this guy so i don't care to honor him enough by to get his name right exactly for example nicholas slatton paul slew evan liberty and dustin hurd remember those names those are the names of men who took the american banner the american dream and promise to iraq and dragged them through the mud by absolutely massacring 17 iraqi citizens in nisr square in baghdad while working for blackwater in front of dozens of witnesses, on cameras, and wearing our colors. Yeah. Blackwater. That group owned by Eric Prince, who is former Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos's brother. Mmm. What's that smell? What's that smell? It smells like BS. I personally want to take a second to talk about a woman named Stephanie Moore. You may or may not have heard about her. She is incredibly offensive to me. She was pardoned in the wave that came right before Christmas 2020 and is perhaps the most indicative of the lack of consideration and really just wanton disregard for the the, the weight and import of the presidential pardon. It... It offends me on a personal level. Moore was a police officer in Prince George's County, Maryland. It's right up the road from where I live, actually. And in the middle of the night on September 21st, 1995, a local Prince George's County police burglary stakeout unit found two homeless men on the empty roof of a business eating food they had found in the trash in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Ordered down from the roof, Ricardo Mendez and his friend, 
willingly climbed down. They were lit by a police helicopter above, and they were facing a brick wall. They were surrounded by police officers. Some of them had guns drawn, and among them was Moore, holding her German shepherd on a leash. Throughout the entirety of their interaction with the police, both men obeyed commands and stood facing the wall with their hands up. Now, as a former law enforcement officer, (laughs) I will tell you with the utmost certainty and conviction in this statement, you literally could not ask for a better circumstance to approach and detain someone. It was over. It should have been over. They should have cuffed them. They should have searched them or proceeded with whatever line of questioning they needed at that point. But that is not what those police did. Police sergeant later testified that that night he was approached by Moore's supervising officer who said, Hey, Sarge, we got a new dog. Mind if it gets a bite? And the sergeant gave consent. These men were as close to helpless as they could be at that moment of time. But then Moore set her dog to attack Mendez. Moore testified that she was doing her job as trained and the victim only needed 10 stitches. That's a quote, actually. The victim needed only 10 stitches. That's what she said on the stand. So even in her testimony... Her disposition towards cruelty and brutality are obvious. But that's not just an opinion. That's not just my opinion. Moore had a pattern of violence. Evidence at trial showed that Moore had previously released her dog on a black teenager sleeping in a hammock in his own backyard. She had threatened the relatives of a fugitive that she would let her dog attack their, quote, black ass if they did not tell her where he was. And there were other incidents that the jury did not even hear about, including one in which Moore put her dog into a trash dumpster to attack a man who had fled from police. The man was in the dumpster hiding, and she threw her dog in to chew him up before she apprehended him. Moore got her pardon by begging for it on Newsmax. They're a media company. They're like Fox, but farther right, if that's. In their statement on the pardon, the White House said that it was due to the service and the lengthy term that Miss Moore served in prison, adding, Officer Moore was a highly commended member of the police force prior to her prosecution. In reality, she has been sued at least four times for brutality, for excessive force. She was twice found to have made false statements to a superior and was flagged as a potential problem officer by the department's early warning system. And yet, still allowed to do that. Now, I bring it up not because Trump is the first person to make a questionable pardon. Obviously, we've already talked about one of Obama's. But... (laughs) These two cases together highlight what is, in my opinion, the obvious rot and corruption on display in Trump's current pardon process.
process. By pardoning people like the Blackwater mercenaries and more, Trump damages the very foundations of American society. And this is, this is not even considering what he incited people to do to the U.S. Capitol. In a time where we're embattled throughout the Middle East, ostensibly trying to foster peace and democracy before we withdraw, we pardon four mass murderers? At least in jail, Iraqis had the assurance that these monsters didn't represent America. They were just monsters. There are monsters everywhere. Everybody understands that, and they understand that they don't represent the place that they come from. But in pardoning them, Trump sent a message that their lives, Iraqi lives, don't matter. They can be killed by the dozens, and their murderers will come home to America to a cheering crowd and open arms. That's the message we're sending overseas. And it's the same with Moore. She represents the worst qualities in a police officer. An urge to hurt, to inflict some twisted sense of justice to wield power over others. She's got a punisher mentality from somebody who has clearly never read the comic or understands what it means. 2020 was yet another year of tensions and, and clashes between minority communities and law enforcement. The pardon of Moore just reinforces the idea that our friends and family that happen to have just a little darker skin, that those people are second-class citizens to greater America. It's one more red flag waving in the face of communities of color, most of whom are working and hoping desperately to build a world where equity is the rule, not the exception. These clemencies, these self-serving and putrid acts, these are the worst form of rot and corruption. They're just wrapped in a sweet veneer of benevolence and quote-unquote justice and fed to the ravenous crowd only too eager to swallow whatever their idol gives them and thank them for the treat. I wasn't actually this worked up when I wrote about <laughs> these people. <laughs> but after yesterday, I just... You know, after after Trump's election, I called my mom that week and I told her I was scared about what it meant for America. And I wasn't actually that politically active at the time. And in fact, that was the first election that I had I had voted for a Democrat. And um I remember her saying that Democrat or Republican, it doesn't really matter who holds office. The country will go on and things will likely remain the same as they always have been. And it's just... I wish you were right. <laughs> yeah. 
I feel like the last four years have broken our confidence that that was the case. Because if you look at the way that our government is designed, that's supposed to be the case. That's supposed to be built into the way we work. That even if we ended up with one outlier in the executive branch, we should still be able to function. We should still be okay. And that's broken. My trust in that is broken. And I was that person who said, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter who gets elected because the legislative branch, because the judicial branch. Um, Yeah, and that trust is completely gone because of things like this, because Donald Trump has exposed all the places in which power in the executive branch can be exploited and misused and twisted and bent for personal gain. He's taken all of the things that were traditional, that were the norms, that were expected but weren't codified in law, and just ripped them down. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, what that means going forward for, for Biden and for every president after him is that these things are likely going to be codified. Our traditions are probably going to become law, and I can't think of a good reason that they shouldn't be law. And I don't know how to feel about that. You would think that anybody who is assuming the office would know the traditions that they are inheriting and want to honor those. But clearly, clearly that is not the case. Clearly we can no longer rely on whoever is running for president of the United States to to be a decent person. Yeah. We've and we've lost that expectation and and it's disgusting because I feel like at least half the country has lost the value of that expectation. They don't care if that person is a decent person as long as that person is on their side. Yeah. As long as it's my person. Oh, yeah. I don't care. Anyway, let's wrap this up. <laughs> um, for for all of these horrendous acts, I will give some credit where it is due. Trump did, in fact, pardon my favorite boxer of all time, <laughs> Jack Johnson. He pardoned Jack Johnson in May of 2018. And this was a posthumous pardon. And dang, if it is not a whole different can of worms. That's a, the, the Jack Johnson story is a great story if yes oh my gosh if you aren't familiar with jack johnson just go and look him up because and not the dude who's saying all the the songs from the curious george movie like yeah if this is this is 1910s just the beauty of baller (laughs) yeah it's just it's just there's no other word for it baller he's like yeah 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 that's exactly what he is. That's exactly right. what he is. But before we get into the stories, because there's some good stories here, before we get into those, 
we kind of have to review what is a posthumous pardon. Um, posthumous, another 50 cent word. It just means after someone's dead. Which kind of <laughs> So kind of like, yeah, womp womp. Right, like doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, right? Because generally the purpose of a pardon or any of the other acts of clemency is to provide some sort of relief from punitive action. So like why then would a president issue a posthumous pardon? Why would he pardon a dead person? And is there like a separate process for that? Because obviously they can't they can't fulfill all of the different requirements that we talked about in the last episode. You can't really demonstrate that you're a good citizen or in need of right. relief once you're dead. You have lain in the ground exactly as one would expect a good citizen right. to lay. Thank you Beautiful. for not rising from the dead. Yes, okay, so you. we'll start with the second question first, right? <laughs> Is there a process? According to the Frequently Asked Questions section on the Department of Justice site, these posthumous pardons really, they don't go through any process. Um, these requests aren't even processed by the Office of the Pardon Attorney. Um, in an effort to preserve the time and the resources of the staff <laughs> who investigate and pursue clemency requests for people who are still living. It takes a lot of work to determine whether someone's request meets the criteria that we outlined in that official process and to make these formal recommendations to the president. And it would take even more time to do that um, if they had to apply those processes and filters to people whose crimes were committed decades in the past and under distant and removed legal precedents. And the Department of Justice also recognizes that many of these requests for posthumous pardons will involve issues of manifest injustice and are less likely to include issues that are generally explored in routine clemency investigations. So they preserve, they prefer to, to reserve their resources for those efforts for those who will directly experience the benefits provided by clemency, they're still alive. And so this is where the plenary power of the president comes in. Um, you know, for so, all that I feel like I've heard about posthumous pardons, I was really surprised to find out that only six individuals so far have been officially pardoned after death by the president of the United States. And four of those have been pardoned by President Trump. That... <laughs> what the actual I have, hell i have thoughts on that actually but we yeah we're running out of time and i've already i've already sent some of those thoughts straight in so right <sighs> tell me about some let's, let's cover them really quick let's all right we're going to talk about henry ossian flipper he was the first person to ever be posthumously pardoned by a united states president if you are still keeping track of your trivia question this is the answer uh, he was pardoned by President Clinton in 1999. Flipper was a former slave and then an engineer and the first black man to graduate from the United States Military Academy at West Point. It feels, it felt like really simple to write that sentence and then to go back and read it and just to list all of those things. Yeah. That's a lot. That's, that's a, lot. a lot. That sentence hit me a lot harder than I expected it to. Uh, he served in several positions in the military until 1881 when he was accused of embezzling $2,000, which in today's money would be equivalent to more than $52,000. Um, and then he was court-martialed for that and dishonorably discharged. President Clinton granted an application for posthumous pardon, noting that the punishment given to Flipper was excessive and unjust um, and not explicitly 
noting that there is a high likelihood that he did not commit the crime, that he was just the easiest person to blame the crime on at that particular point. Um, that's not outlined in the pardon because, again, all of the research and effort doesn't exactly go into um, exploring these posthumous pardons, but it is enough at this point to just kind of give that blanket pardon. The, <laughs> the next posthumous pardon was a man named Charles Winters, who was convicted of smuggling three B-17 bombers to the newly created state of Israel. Every time I read that, how the hell do you... How? I know. How? How do you smuggle an entire bomber, let alone three? Smuggle. Um, farms. Like, like he... Anyway, it, it's a really interesting story. We're not going to get into the whole story of, of what he did. But in Israel, he is legitimately credited as the father of the Israeli Air Force. It's crazy. Okay. Um, it's super cool. But... Uh, so he smuggled those over there. He received absolutely no monetary compensation for those planes, uh, but supposedly he did so in an effort to help his Jewish friends. He ended up serving 18 months in prison and was fined $5,000, um, which he served and paid, but then he was posthumously pardoned by George Bush, George W. Bush in 2009. Huh. Huh. All right. I want to talk about Jack story. Johnson. Yeah, these these co these guys are all. I mean, a lot of these guys are really cool. I'm not gonna lie, or at least they have really cool stories. Jack Johnson, a very 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 short version of his story. I totally took this from you because no, it's I, fine. Uh, it's fine. Thought this is so cool for so long. He was a a champion boxer, which is like the understatement right. of the century. He was the champion boxer he was I, I he was like the tom brady of boxing in the 1910s oh, nope you take that heresy right back <laughs> i'm sorry i don't like brady but he has been i mean he has five super bowl rings and has been in for how many years and he's like 43 now or something and still playing and still winning you don't gotta ish. like him winning you don't ish. gotta like him hashtag tampa bay First, first season. I don't like him. I'm a, I'm a Chiefs fan all the way. But anyway, which yeah, regardless, getting off track. The point is, the dude, the dude was a Banff. Like he just, he was so good, so entertaining. He was the first black man to win the world heavyweight championship. He was also the center of quite a bit of controversy <laughs> because of his fondness for white women in 1912 uh, in 1912 he married Lucille Cameron who was a a white former prostitute and eventually he traveled with her across state lines in October of that year he was arrested for the first time for violating the Mann Act which is the dumbest law that has ever existed. Um, it's also called the White Slave Traffic Act, uh, which was essentially created to combat prostitution and other immoral behavior. So, like, it was created, it was created to to combat sex trafficking. That's great. It was used right. for, for not that. It right. was used to punish people like Jack Johnson. 
Yeah. The case fell apart due to Cameron's refusal to participate on account of the fact that Jack Johnson was her husband. Right. Uh, But in 1913, Johnson was arrested again on charges brought by another white woman with whom he had a relationship in 1909 and 1910. So previous to his marriage to Lucille Cameron. And previous to the passing of the Mann Act. Good point. Johnson was convicted and sentenced to one year and one day in prison, which observant listeners will understand means it's a felony charge. However, he and Cameron fled to Canada and did not surrender himself until 1920. <laughs> He's like, nah. <laughs> like nah and then he only came back because she was like, I'm leaving you. And he was like, eh, F it. I want to go back to the United States, but I got to do this thing first. Yeah, be right there. 366 days later, unless it was a leap year. Uh, So President Trump granted Johnson a posthumous pardon in 2018. So that's great. Cool. Cool. I mean, uh, in stories like that one, um, it feels pretty symbolic, right? Because anybody who reads that story knows that Jack Johnson did not commit any crimes. Any yeah. legitimate actual crimes. Yeah. But it is it is good now that his his name is not marred by yeah. his uh, his legacy has been cleared right. by Trump, which I think if there were such a thing as cosmic irony, I think that would meet the, the standard. <laughs> yes. Uh, President Trump has also posthumously pardoned Zay Jeffries, who was convicted in nineteen forty eight of violating the Sherman Antitrust Act, but who served no jail time. Susan B. Anthony, the pioneer for women's suffrage who was convicted of illegal voting and who most scholars agree would have rebuffed the idea of being pardoned in the first place. (laughs) Um, And a man named Russell Plaisance, who was convicted of attempting to smuggle illegal drugs via ship and who also served no prison sentence. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> like, what the actual? One of these know. days, some historian is going to give us a detailed look at the reasoning behind these posthumous pardons of of Donald Trump's. And I'm sh- I'm sure. I I mean, there ha there. I can't even say. I can't even say the words. Why? It- what? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the very, very, very cynical part of me wants to say that the Jack Johnson and the Susan B. Anthony pardons were to garner support from the black community and and suburban women. Oh, yeah. No, the Susan B. Anthony pardon was blatantly to do so um, and and was um, rebuffed by scholars you know, worldwide who know anything about the women's suffrage movement and Susan B. Anthony, they all said, do not do this. A, this is performative and it's very clearly performative. And two, this is the antithesis of what she would have wanted. Um, yeah. Kind of, you know, the the emphasis of that whole movement was that these women were willing to sacrifice everything, life, health, reputation, for the cause of women's suffrage. Um, and so the idea that, a pompous airbag of a man would come along and take from her that achievement of 
of that conviction, honestly, I mean, it, it was repugnant to anybody who studies Susan B. Anthony, um, and it was poorly advised, and he did it anyway, which, duh. Nobody, nobody was surprised. Right. So, you know, pardons. Um, yeah, pardons. We, That's we, what this <laughs> thing's about. Yeah. We alluded to it a little bit last week, but uh, pardons, they do come with caveats. I mean... All of the clemency acts have the caveat of being conditional if the president decides that they should be. But the pardon specifically comes with some unique peculiarities. Uh, So if you're going to receive a pardon, there's a couple of things you probably would like to know first. So, first of all, you've probably heard of this little thing called the Fifth Amendment. (laughs) Or at least you've heard the phrase... I plead the fifth. Or maybe, I plead the fifth, if you like Dave Chappelle. uh, Because that was one of the best catches ever. Uh, The Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution provides, No person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Funny things happen when the Fifth Amendment collides with a pardon. Right. So to understand why these funny things happen, uh, first, let's take a look at a court case called Ex Parte Garland. In 1865, Congress passed an act that said you could only practice law in a federal court if you took an oath asserting that you had never voluntarily borne arms against the United States, had never given aid or encouragement to persons engaged in armed hostilities, and so on. Which, as you can imagine, in 1865 caused some consternation with former Confederates who wanted to continue to practice law after reintegrating with the winners. Enter Augustus Hill Garland, a lawyer who was formerly part of the Congress of the Losing Confederacy. Clearly, as a member of that Congress, he had given aid and encouragement to people engaged in armed hostilities against the United States. Just a little. Can't emphasize that enough. I feel like that gets missed a lot. Yeah. Uh, Armed Armed hostilities hostilities. against the United States. Right. However. Remember that. Remember that. When you. Yeah. Once once everything was hunky-dory again, he wanted to continue to practice law. And luckily for Garland, Andrew Johnson pardoned him and a ton of other people uh, for their participation in the Civil War on the Confederate side. And so the court had to decide whether or not this pardon entitled Garland to practice in the federal courts. So writing for a divided court, Supreme Court Justice Field said, A pardon reaches both the punishment prescribed for the offense and the guilt of the offender. And when the pardon is full, it releases the punishment and blots out the existence of guilt, so that in the eye of the law, the offender is as innocent as if he had never committed the offense. If granted before conviction, it prevents any of the penalties and disabilities consequent upon conviction from attaching. If granted after conviction, it removes the penalties and disabilities and restores him to all his civil rights. It makes him, as it were, a new man and gives him a new credit and capacity. And basically, yeah, if you're pardoned, Ish never happened. You good. You good. You good, fam. <laughs> That's basically, let's boil that down. Never happened. You good. Right. Uh, in, in 
application, this turned out to be a little bit overbroad. Um, in Carlesi v. New York, the court walked it back just a tad by saying that pardons cannot limit the power of the United States in punishing crimes against its authority. Past offenses could be considered as aggravating factors when sentencing for a new offense. Uh, this means that if you received a pardon for one offense, the courts can still consider it when they determine the punishment if you commit more crimes. The courts have also determined that a pardon doesn't erase any professional censure, loss of license, or what have you that you might experience if you commit a crime. So if you're a doctor and you commit a federal crime and lose your license to practice, a pardon from the president won't necessarily restore that licensure. So what does this mean for the Fifth Amendment? Circling back to that. Well, the Fifth states that a person can't be forced to bear witness against themselves. Now, you can only be a witness against yourself if you are on trial for committing a crime. If you haven't committed a crime, there's no trial and therefore no risk of incriminating yourself. So in normal talk, it basically means you can't get in legal trouble for the crime you definitely committed. <laughs> so there's therefore no reason that you can't be compelled to testify against that other dude who committed that crime with you. It's really not great if the person granting the pardon is facing trial or has been convicted for the crimes they committed with you. Huh? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. And there's Maybe. one more juicy tidbit, right? In Burdick v. United States, George Burdick just declined to testify before a federal grand jury on the grounds that his testimony would incriminate him. He pleaded the fifth. President Wilson offered him a full pardon if he would testify, but Burdick declined. The court wrote that there are consequences for accepting a pardon, saying escape by confession of guilt implied in the acceptance of pardon may bring consequences worse than being accused of a crime itself, to paraphrase. Thus, giving voice to one of the underlying problems with the pardon, it is by its very nature an admission of guilt. You can't be pardoned for something that you haven't done. This has led multiple federal courts of appeals to conclude that the historical language from early pardon cases is inconsistent with current law. So a pardon isn't great for someone proclaiming their innocence to all that will listen. It turns out that while a pardon might seem like the ultimate cure-all for someone accused or even not yet accused, of a federal crime, it isn't actually as complete as one would think. I do want to identify one more uh, little twist when it comes to the Fifth Amendment, and that's that even though being pardoned relieves you of your ability to claim that in a federal case, if you are facing crimes at the state level for a similar or the same offense, you can still plead the fifth in other testimony. So you can't, you could be called to the stand in a trial later that isn't your own trial and be asked to provide testimony. But in the course of providing that testimony, you would be providing a record for the prosecution to use in a state level charge and still plead the fifth. 
So it is kind of complicated, and it doesn't mean that everybody who is pardoned can be forced to testify, but it's just, it's not great. That's all I'm trying to say is you can still be protected by the Fifth Amendment, but it also reduces the overall umbrella of the Fifth Amendment protection for you. Another caveat that's come to light, especially recently, is that presidential clemency can be granted outside of the Justice Department process we talked about earlier, going through the Office of the Pardon Attorney and then the Attorney General, right? President Trump has gained notoriety, to put it lightly, (laughs) for largely operating outside of that established process and granting clemency to his political allies and advisors. And he's, he's definitely not the only president to do that. President Clinton issued several self-serving pardons on his last day in office. Uh, President Obama's clemency initiative changed the process in such a way that pardon attorney Deborah Leff cited it as one of the reasons for her resignation. But what seems to be catching attention, and not in a good way, is the overwhelming number of Trump's clemency acts that circumvent that standard process and benefit his personal or political connections. I mean, how can how can we know that they bypass the process? Well, that's a really great question. You see, the Department of Justice actually keeps a database of all petitions for clemency received since 1989. That's not complete, but it goes far enough back for us to take a look at what President Trump has been doing. And in an article on his blog, Lawfare, and also in a cool sortable spreadsheet... Jack Goldsmith, who is the learned hand professor at Harvard Law School, among a host of other credentials, um, reviewed the 94 acts of clemency granted by Trump. Of those 94, 41 were not listed in that Department of Justice database. That means that they never even started the Department of Justice process. This includes some of the most high-profile and controversial acts of clemency, like the pardons of Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, and the four Blackwater contractors. Um, And I did a little checking while you were uh, talking about Stephanie Moore, also likely includes her pardon as well. Um, Not surprised. I mean, I, I, I have no doubt that he was watching the news and saw her begging for pardon. How... How much injustice had been done. You know what? You know what? Moving on. I can't get started on her again. Screw that lady. Right. In the database, she's listed as not likely recommended, which means that there may be um, some sort of an application process started, but in a lot of those situations, they aren't complete. They're not finished. They never made it all the way through. Yeah. Um, In fact, Professor Goldsmith could only clearly conclude that seven of those acts of clemency were recommended by the pardon attorney through the Department of Justice process. That's clearly concluded, right? That's no conjecture, but you can only clearly decide that seven of those were recommended by the pardon attorney through that process. Um, Four of all of these acts of clemency have been posthumous pardons, which we just talked about. And then the other two, he speculates on and, and draws his own conclusions um, as to whether or not they probably were a part of an appropriate process or 
whether they were likely influenced by political and personal connections or a direct connection to crimes that President Trump may or may not have committed himself. Um, but we definitely didn't feel comfortable relying on conjecture, even that of an incredibly uh, well-learned lawyer to, um, to draw those conclusions where we just couldn't back it up with clear evidence. Yeah. Again, this is all perfectly legal, the Constitution outlines the power and puts very few limitations on the pardon process. But this has definitely led to some discussion as to whether firm legal limitations should be considered. I mean, we've all heard the quote, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Acton, which <laughs> is a... A lot of names for Lord Acton in a letter to uh, Bishop Mandel of Crichton. I don't, I don't know if a lot of you knew where that quote came from. I was just happy to finally put a name to it. So right. that's why I included it. Um, so that, I mean, that's the question that's being wrestled with right now. Should sitting presidents be able to wield forgiveness for federal crimes with impunity to just right. anybody that they desire? Should President Trump be able to wave his magic wand of clemency and erase everything that happened at the United States Capitol? Right. Oh, sh You know, when you asked the question earlier about whether or not those people should be pardoned, I was imagining a Biden administration pardoning them. But I forgot Trump has, at the time of this recording, 13 days, 12 and some change right now. Yeah. 12 days where he could just do it himself. Anybody and everybody involved, he could just do it himself. <sighs> I wish I could say, nah, there's no way he'd do that and actually believe it. <laughs> but I can't. Wow. So when this question was asked... What about presidential pardons? When that was asked of us, because this is actually a listener uh, referral. There were two implicit questions with it. Can a president pardon himself or herself? And can a president preemptively pardon somebody? So let's tackle these real quick. And then um, I think we can wrap it up. So first of all, can a president pardon himself? Eh. <laughs> I wish I could give you I wish I could give you a better answer, but there's really no clear cut answer for this one. It's so anticlimactic. The, I so know, right? We built up it. to it. Maybe. Yes. Maybe. The Constitution doesn't really have much to say about the pardon power. We already read it to you. We've really kind of exhausted the only thing it really does say. However, let's reiterate. The president can pardon people who committed federal crimes unless they're being impeached. That's it. All right. Nothing, nothing in the Constitution talks about the self-pardon. But boy, are there a <laughs> lot of thoughts. A lot of thoughts about it. Especially today. Yo, man. You know, there's, it just feels like there's more questions today than there were yesterday for some reason. Uh, since the Constitution really doesn't explicitly prohibit it, 
there is an argument to be made that it is completely legal. Right. Uh, I mean, some would say that no man can be the judge in his own case, as the Office of Legal Counsel said in a 1974 opinion. They stopped just shy of saying that a president could not pardon himself, instead choosing to use the vague and incredibly frustrating it would seem a president could not pardon himself. Such a pardon would effectively be placing the president above the law. But the thing is, the law doesn't say the president can't self-pardon, so the president would technically be operating within the bounds of the law if they pardon themselves. Neither is the president acting as a judge, since no judge has the power to issue a pardon. There's an argument that Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution requires the president to faithfully execute the law. Section 3, therefore, establishes a, a trust with the American people that the president would violate by issuing a self-pardon. Yet would the president, therefore, not be violating that trust when he pardons anyone who has taken an oath to faithfully execute the law? Right? I mean, the president is far from the only person to take that oath. I, I took that oath when I became a law enforcement officer and swore to uphold the Constitution. Like, I said those words. And I, as far as I know, that oath still binds me because I don't think it's contingent upon employment. <laughs> Wasn't right? part of it. So if I got pardoned, would, would that not be the same thing? Further, as above, uh, as we talked about before, uh, as long as the pardons are for federal offenses and not in an impeachment trial, the law is being faithfully executed. Right. Given that the Founding Fathers didn't expressly include this limitation in the Constitution, they might have thought that that kind of a consideration was so absurd as to not be worth including. Certainly, they had just fought a revolutionary war to escape a king that they considered to be a tyrant. They mindfully divided power into three branches of government. They didn't even imagine that political parties would be a significant factor in the execution of the United States government. It doesn't make very much sense for them to allow the president to break laws with impunity. It may be that they assumed that any such matter that would require the president to pardon himself would be addressed via impeachment, therefore removing the president's ability to self-pardon and rendering this a completely moot point. That kind of expectation that the president of the United States would be a generally good person who's looking out for the best interest of the United States otherwise impeach him. But still, it's a really bothersome gap. The fact of the matter is, we're not going to have a solid legal ruling on this until somebody actually tries. But hey, the good news is that might be coming sooner rather than later. <laughs> uh, did you just call that good news? It's technically good news. At least it won't be a, you know, a question anymore. We'll have an answer. We'll come back to them. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Fireside Breakdowns bringing you the cutting edge news as soon as... The president does yet another thing that is morally questionable. Whew. Okay, so the other implicit question here is, can a president preemptively pardon? This one's a little easier to answer because we have plenty of legal precedent on this one. 
absolutely a president a president can preemptively pardon someone. Remember what Justice Field wrote in Ex Parte Garland. If granted before conviction, it prevents any of the penalties and disabilities consequent upon conviction from attaching. If you were pardoned before a verdict about your guilt is reached, there is no penalty. You have effectively not committed a crime in the eyes of the court. And yes, would a preemptive pardon kind of circumvent that Department of Justice process? It would. But that process is best practice, not, it doesn't limit the president's plenary powers. Yeah. No. Remember, though, it, it would also be an admission of guilt. So right. moving forward from that point, you aren't it's not like it's not like you're untarnished. Right. It's not it's a not that, guilty verdict. Yeah, exactly. It's that we are no longer going to append a legal consequence to your actions. Right. You are free to go. It's yeah, it's forgiveness, not absolution. Exactly. Exactly. And however, there is a, a, a minor, major limitation to this. The president cannot pardon by anticipation. So what does that mean? Very, very simply, the president can't pardon anyone for a crime they're about to commit. Preemptive has a very very specific definition after the crime but before conviction anticipatory pardons would happen before the crime and this would essentially grant the president the power to dispense with the law altogether and that that dog won't hunt i so, knew that was coming <laughs> there have been some questions from Mr. Trump about perhaps a, a pardon for all crimes potentially committed in the future in order to ostensibly protect him from unfair prosecution by mm-hmm. the ravenous left. And right. Their, you know, sycophantic pursual of him. No. No, no, no. No. Literally, January 21st, 2021, if the president commits a crime that day, he is totally legally culpable for all of the, all, all, all of the, the, the fallout from that crime. He can't just be like, yeah, for the rest of my life, me and my kids were good. No crimes. He's also a little bit of a gangster now because it's late and I am definitely several, several shots of whiskey deep. Uh, He's the godfather now. He's God, he wishes he were the godfather. That's the problem. That is the problem, Robin. He wants to be the godfather, okay? But he ain't. He's more like Ernest goes to Little Italy than the godfather. Oh, man. Oh, man. 
Oh, man. Okay. All right. I think we'll wrap this one up. Yeah. You know what? Guys, I'm going to plug us again. Plug it. If you like, if you like what we do, if you like the show, if you like the information that we bring to you, please, 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 for the love of God, <laughs> leave us a review. We need those reviews. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Begging. Let us know we're doing that we're doing a good job. All right. If we're not doing a good job, don't leave us a review. <laughs> that defeats the purpose. Send us an email. We'll fix it there. Uh, <laughs> if you'd like to uh, reach out to us, you can send us an email. Firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. You can also reach us at Fireside Breakdowns on Facebook and Fireside Breakdowns on Instagram and nowhere else. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> These are the three places. That's it. We ain't on the TikToks. The end. Not yet. I uh, I just can't download it, Robin. I can't do it. I can't do it. That's a whole other. That's a whole other series of podcasts. Right. Um, Thankfully, I am fairly confident that our primary audience is not consuming informational content on TikTok. They are probably yeah. consuming TikTok, but I don't think that's where they get their news. I one would hope not. Uh, interestingly. BT Dubs, TikTok was one of the platforms to disseminate the plans for raiding the Capitol on the 6th. <sighs> yeah. They came in Isn't clutch with thwarting Trump's rallies all spring and summer long. And now it's turned and now they do it like this. good people. Look at that. Look at that. Anyway, everyone, thank you so much for listening to us every week. We... We may have sounded a little bitter these past couple of episodes. Yeah. But we want you to know that the sixth, what happened, is one of the reasons we do this. If anything, it has strengthened our resolve to continue bringing these episodes, to continue doing the research, to continue dedicating our time to making sure that quality information is brought to you. So thank you very much for your attention. And now, more than ever, take care of each other.